Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Puppies and kitties, books and movies. Yes, we love these. Listen to this podcast, please. Squad goals. We have a very special episode today for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, most important reason is we have a guest. Yes, that's me, Mary Kay. Here I am. One of our favorite guests has returned. Thank you. And Susan, you weren't here the last time Mary Kay was here, right? No, no I wasn't. So this is extra special for me. Me too. So. Mary Kay is on a podcast called Everything Trying to Kill You, which if you aren't listening to that yet, what is wrong with you? Yeah. Uh, Mary Kay, you want to tell us a little bit about what you, who, who you are, what you do? Yeah. So for work and for money, I teach English composition and, and coming to theaters, uh, also world lit now. But um, for fun and for fulfillment in life, my two best or two of my best friends and I, because we know best friend is a tier, not a person, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Okay. I'm glad we're all in agreement on that. Um, but we also have a podcast called Everything Trying to Kill You, like Emily said, and it talks about movies that have something in them that's trying to kill you. So we started off with horror movies and then we were like, maybe we'll change it up a little bit. And it's equal parts... That's not true. It's never equal parts, but it's part funny and part analysis. And we just did an episode on Black Swan, which is like all of our jam. Yeah. We have talked about Black Swan Mm -hmm. briefly on this podcast. I Um, can talk about it at length. So, yeah. Yeah. And I love that episode. It was a great episode. Thank you. It was one of my, it was, I think maybe my favorite one. Um, But, and it also has a sort of lesbian makeout scene in it. Like this yeah. movie. So we yeah. can, maybe when we get to that, we can kind of like do a compare contrast. Okay. Um, because what we're talking about today on the podcast is um, Jennifer's Body. Um, mm-hmm. And you might be wondering, why are we talking about a movie from 2009? And let me explain. It's because the second half of this episode is in an interview with um, Grady Hendrix, who um, we have talked about on the podcast a whole oh, bunch. Yeah. We reviewed his book, um, Horror Store, way, way mm-hmm. back last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, Mary and I have gushed about how much we love My Best Friend's Exorcism. Um, and he has a new book coming out at the beginning of September or mid-September. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is called We Sold Our Souls. And it is a 
about a band and um, Jennifer's body also features a band that has a demonic connection. So to me, these are both horror comedies that have similar themes going on in them and both have bands in them. So it seemed very relevant to me to pair these two together. Um, And even like watching it again now, it kind of reminded me of my best friend's exorcism at parts. Yeah, it's a lot about uh, female friendship and high school and growing up and learning about your own sexuality. Yeah, but before we get into talking about Jennifer's body... Both of these stories, Jennifer's Body and We Sold Our Souls, have a band at the center of the story. Um, And so I just wondered, what is your favorite fictional band? And we'll let Mary Kay go first, since she's the guest. Oh, good. That means nobody gets to take mine. Yeah. I picked two, though, just in case. Do you want me to go with my true favorite? Should I say them both? Both. You can say both of them, yeah. Both of them. Okay, so my first instinct was Mouse Rat. Ah, yes. Yes. And then I was like, but what, I probably wouldn't actually listen to it. I just like Andy. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then I was like, the fictional band I would actually listen to is probably Paperboy from Atlanta. Ah, yeah. Because he's like from down the street from me. Yeah. Because it's actually just Donald Glover. Right, right, yeah. And that also. I would listen to him all day. (laughs) Me too. I would just watch him fold laundry. Like, whatever you want to do, man. That's one of my favorite things about the show is everybody on the street's like, hey, is that Paperboy? Yeah. I love that show. Good, good picks, and I mean, really, uh, great uh, Chris Pratt, yeah, reference there because Chris Pratt is obviously in this movie as well, mm-hmm. looking all good. I know. I know. I was like, <laughs> I get so excited. Yeah, I almost shat when I saw it. <laughs> uh, Susan, what about you? Oh, um, hands down, my favorite fictional band is Dr. Funke's 100% Natural Good Time Family Band Solution from Arrested Development. A true treat. <laughs> nice. Um, his Lindsay and Tobias, um, are my, they're not my favorite characters. Job is my favorite. But <sighs> Lindsay and Tobias together, like, are my second favorite. <laughs> so, I think yeah. I have a double whammy as well. This is Mary, by the way. Yes, this is Mary. <laughs> Uh, childhood favorite, The Misfits from Jim and the Holograms. Oh, that's a good one. Because they had I didn't even really I didn't cool... even think about cartoon bands, man. Yeah, I almost said The Beats from Doug. Uh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> like, they had really cool, crazy 80s makeup and big hair, and I was really into that. But, like, current band, fictional band, I'm going to say Josie and the Pussycats from Riverdale. Ah, of course you were going to pick Riverdale. I should have known that. Yeah. Um, so this is Emily, and I, I mean, I'm going to have to do two as well, and nice. I'll explain why. So my first response to this when I came up with the question is, like, obviously it's Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I had that on my list. Oh, Yeah. Music I actually listened to. And yeah, like, I actually listened to that music. Um, Love the movie. I got to see um, Actors Express in Atlanta do the play, and I loved it. Y'all, if you're in it, in Atlanta, anywhere around Atlanta, check out Actors Express. They are, like, so every single play I've gone to has been, like, amazing. So definitely check that out. The second one I was going to mention is um, Flight of the Concord. Yeah, I forgot about that. And like, I didn't really. They're not really fictional, though. Well, here's the thing. Like, it's they're like on the edge of being fictional, right? Because they do actually like tour, but like they're playing characters. (laughs) So I feel like it counts. And also definitely, I definitely listen to Flight of the Concord's. 
and know all the words to all the songs. Like, whatever. I really just want to start singing Wig in a Box yeah, now. Yeah, you can. Mm, no, you don't want that. <laughs> um, all right. So we're talking about Jennifer's body. Um, and I have a really brief description. Um, so written by Oscar-winning writer Diablo Cody and directed by Karen Kusama, Jennifer's Body is a demonic possession teen comedy about a teenage girl named Jennifer Check, played by Megan Fox, who ends up being possessed by a succubus demon after being sacrificed by an indie rock band. So wild. That is, I wish that, did you write that? I did not write that. Did you write that? I found that. Whoever wrote that copy needs to get in touch with Sling, because every time I read a description about some show on Sling, I'm like... I have less information than I deduced <laughs> before I read this. Like, I have no idea what's going on. Anyway, that was good. Okay. <laughs> That's exactly what happens in um, the movie, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, I like nice and succinct. I do want to add a couple of things. Um, so the the main character of the movie is really uh, Jennifer's best friend, Anita right. Lesnicki. She goes by Needy, and she's played by Amanda Seyfried. And um, we also have... Chip, who is Needy's boyfriend, and then also notably <laughs> is Nikolai, played by Adam Brody, who is the lead singer of the indie rock band in question called Lo- the band's called Low Shoulder. Um, also of note, Chris Pratt, J.K. Simmons, and Amy Sedaris are in this movie. Surprise! In pretty small part. I know. <laughs> also, we should say, gonna spoil. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'll, oh, should we mention Kelly's not here? <laughs> We gained a Mary Kay. And last time um, I was raptured for our leftovers episode. They didn't want me. I'm back. And now Kelly's been raptured. Yes. Kelly. Well, Kelly has been kidnapped by an indie rock band. And sacrificed. And then I'm the succubus that possessed her body. Yes. Yes. You're the succubus. So right. This is a good story. I also, Mm -hmm. I didn't steal her voice, though. I didn't go full hot Ursula. (laughs) I didn't steal her voice, though. Um, Okay, so anyway, the question that I feel like is on all of our minds is uh, some of the language in this movie. Um, 2009 doesn't seem that long ago until you watch this movie, and then you realize Mm -hmm. that... We just oh, don't yeah. say that things are retarded or lesbian gay anymore. It's just, like, not okay. So, um, yeah. how did you guys feel about the language of this movie? And were there any particular phrases or pieces of slang that made you specifically uncomfortable? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> For sure. I, so, like, I guess I should say before we get too deep in, I was obsessed with Jennifer's body when it first came out. I was in college and my sisters and I watched it repeatedly because we just thought it was really funny. And it was, I mean, like in retrospect, I guess it felt kind of empowering that this sort of like pretty woman is like eating boys. Mm-hmm. That is satisfying. I agree. That is very satisfying. Yeah. yeah. So I was obsessed with it and we would quote it all the time. Oh, no. Like, um, (laughs) when Jennifer says, he gave me a weddie. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, my God. I just got to forget about that. Like, we would quote it all the time because it was so dumb. We never quoted, like, the sort of offensive stuff, but some of the stupid things, like, where's it at, Monastown? That one is insane. (laughs) It's so dumb. But um, studying disability studies now 
and going back and watching it again, I still like the movie. And I think a lot of what makes it funny still holds up. But just the liberal use of the R word. Mm-hmm. It really puts me off. Um, I Maybe because like that wasn't something my friends and I said to each other ever. Yeah. You know, like it just really sticks out. Yeah. As being bad. I remember, now. I remember back then it being used a oh, lot yeah. more casually. Yeah. Um, not that that makes it, it like, it fine for sure was. I just think, like, in my circles, people were more into calling stuff gay derogatorily, which is also than not they okay. were. <laughs> That's not okay either. They just picked either. a different, a different bad insult. thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I actually, I think, guess I probably heard people say the, R word more. Mm-hmm. And to me, when part of your question, Emily, was you said 2009 doesn't seem that long ago. And it doesn't, it's like but 10 years. I would say this movie seems even older than that. This movie was like very 2004 uh-huh. to oh, me. Yeah. Like in fashion, in the way they're talking, the like fashion. that's when I remember people like speaking like that all the time. And those cropped hoodies, I mean, if that wasn't 2004. <laughs> It was. I had the tracksuit, the cropped the jacket is, with the pants. Mm. It was Pepto Bismol pink. I just need everyone to know yes. that in high school I had that. Yes. <laughs> Juicy yes. Couture actually sponsored this movie. I don't know. That makes know. a lot of sense. That That's not true. I just made that up. But I it was would like, make really? sense. I really yeah. wanted it to be true. Though. I wasn't questioning it because I wanted it to be no, true. <laughs> um, yeah. I felt like I was walking into a fucking time capsule language. Mm-hmm. It was like, wow, this is <gasps> horrifying. Like, this is exactly right as far as, like, slang goes. Mm-hmm. And the one that I had the most issue with was the word salty. Because it does not yeah. mean sexy. It does not mean beautiful. It no. means that you are still upset about something. That's what right. that means. Mm-hmm. That's not making fun. We need to talk. I guess Jennifer, but where, I don't know her. Where but. is Megan Fox? She's mm-hmm. not on New Girl anymore. That's not is she okay? Anymore. I don't care. The last thing I saw her in was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I was really mad about it. So I really don't like oh. Megan Fox. Yeah. You know, I don't either because of all the Michael Bay stuff she's done. But when I think about Jennifer's body, I think, oh, I think she was actually like pretty good in it. No. <laughs> I disagree. That's Sorry. Okay. Amanda Seyfried was good. Yeah. I don't think. But I think she did that kind of stupid role fine. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I mean, it's kind of her range, you she's know? She's always, yeah, no, I was going to say, it's, it's always about like that, though. Yeah. I know, I'm trying not to be salty towards Megan Fox, which is how that word is actually used. <laughs> but, but um, no, I never really like her very much. I know we talked about um, the racism in this movie. Oh, oh yeah. Say more about that. Yeah. Um, why, don't, why don't you talk about that, Mary Kay? Um, so Ahmet is our only person of color in the whole yeah, movie. Right. He yeah, is, it's a super white movie. Yeah, which I mean, in two thousand four through white. eight was not like that uncommon. But also, he dies almost yeah. immediately, and he doesn't have any speaking lines. Right, and um, he's othered immediately, also, mm-hmm. um, because and portrayed as extremely yeah. undesirable. Like it would be hilarious to like hit on him because like he's yes and then also she's i mean sorry he's the first victim of jennifer um and Mm -hmm. also the phrasing of that 
bothered me too. And I know that like I'm extra sensitive to it because I look for it specifically. Yeah. But she asked, she asked him first, does your host family know you're alive? Which is like a legit question. And then he Mm -hmm. shakes his head no. And then she says, does anyone know you're alive? Like really meanly. And then he also is like, no. And then I just, it's not out of character for Jennifer, right? But I'm also like, I hate her more for right. that. Which I think is probably the goal, right. but right. I still hate her, whether it was the goal or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, like, those were some of the lines, like, it was quoted in all of the articles, that, or maybe at least two of them, that you posted, Emily, where she's like, uh, she's making fun of him because she doesn't know if he's circumcised. Also, that's not a thing. Like, I know that that's oh, yeah. something that people talked about in high school, but, like, it is it is so not even an important mm. thing at all. Like, anyway. Um, but, yeah, that's just... And, like, none yeah, of your business, racism. you know? <laughs> also that. actually also, having yeah. sex with this person. Um, yeah. And then the teacher doesn't even care, right? Like, the teacher doesn't even care that he's dead. He's, like, at the end of the list. Right. But, anyway. Yeah. I do feel, however, that, like, as far as the betrayal of female characters, um, this movie feels ahead mm-hmm. of its time. At the time, there weren't a lot of movies being made by women, starring women. And, I mean, because studios were afraid that those movies weren't going to right. make any money. And that's starting to change a little bit slowly, but it's still, like... It's starting to change a little bit, but we've still got, like, even really famous actresses like Brie Larson trying to direct and not being able to find a distributor. Right. So, I mean, the fact that this was directed and written by women, um, starring women, is a big deal. And I posted a lot of articles about the fact that, like, and and I will share this in the show notes, that a lot of the reason that this movie didn't do so well was because it was sort of, like geared towards women and right. it wasn't really like marketed that way and people didn't really understand right. that um and i was just wondering how you guys feel about that like is this movie feminist i think obviously like i've sort of like shared that i mm-hmm. think it is and i can talk about that a little bit more but I'm, i mean i think it's debatable there are feminist qualities to this movie. okay i think that's fair i think that's a fair phrasing <laughs> please please share yeah well okay one of the things that um in the refinery 29 mm-hmm. article um, I'm just going to yeah. read a little piece of it. In fact, the reason Jennifer becomes a demon in the first place, rather than just dying from the violent stab wounds inflicted on her by emo Seth Cohen and his band while sacrificing her to the devil, is because they wrongly believed her to be a virgin. In complete opposition to tired horror tropes, a woman is, in a way, saved by her sexual experience, rising anew to wreak revenge on those who've wronged her. Um, like, to me, that's... Besides the focus on female friendship, the most, like, feminist thing about I like those lines, too. I, so, I agree with that. And then I'm also just kind of over this concept of virginity. Mm -hmm. Because it's much Mm -hmm. more gray area than people will admit to be. Mm -hmm. Especially with the... I don't know how, should we call it homoerotic right. stuff that I is happening know. between them? Or we don't really know well, either of their orientations for real because it doesn't matter. Because that's not like the right. point. Well, one of the articles that I shared and I will share in the show notes argues that 
this is a love story between mm-hmm. and that there there are suggestions that there is something like queer going on between them um so i think that's there to read it that way if you want um but i feel like if that's what the movie was trying to do then they didn't um push it enough yeah right like they were it seemed like they were yeah. too afraid to not to make this movie like not heteronormative you know like it's already about women. We can't make this about women who don't need men at all. Right. And it, for 2009, though, I feel like this is pretty, I mean, to be a not niche thing, which it would have had to have been, right? Like, that's why the marketing is a thirst trap for dudes who like Megan Fox, right? Mm-hmm. It's because nobody would yeah. go see it then. Now, it's fine. I remember, like, when Black Swan came out, and that was, like, three years later, right? Um, people were like, I can't believe you went to see that movie. It has that scene in it. It's like, yeah, it's part of the movie. Like, that's not the point, right? Right. Yeah, Yeah, that's one small part. I mean, also, I guess, like, the really hypocritical thing is, when I was growing up, no one ever said, like, oh my gosh, you went to a movie with a straight sex scene in it. Right. You know, it's it's purely (laughs) the queer aspect that puts people off a lot of the time. And... I think people in charge of marketing use it to their advantage because they can, like you said, like spin it so it looks like, oh, dude, you definitely want to come see these two girls make out, even though that's not what it's about. How do you get men to come to the theater, like show some girls making out? Like that's what that's what marketing is thinking, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, it's a ballet movie. How do we get people to come get Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis to have sex with each other? Which is super messed up. Obviously, however, I do want to say, like, obviously that's not the purpose of the scene in Black Swan, and it's more important than that, but that's how marketing Yes, correct, yeah. Right. Right. I really struggled watching this again after so many years, thinking about is it feminist or not, because even though I can point to feeling empowered by it when I was, you know, Mm -hmm. in early college seeing like this woman just murder a bunch of dudes and (laughs) stuff like that. Like I felt like it was really cool then, but now knowing more about feminism and just like life in general, I guess I really went back and forth on whether I think this is a feminist film or not. And it comes down to me to when this movie happened in Diablo Mm -hmm. Cody's career, because it really is like Diablo Cody to the fullest level. And the story at its core is something that's really interesting and something that I think is good, you know, can needy sort of like kill her best friend in order to save the town essentially. Um, and herself, that is a story full of like conflict and it's about two girls being best friends. And what do you do when that starts to crumble and there's supernatural stuff All of that stuff is like, yes, I would say this is feminist and good and I like it. But in a way, I get the sense that Diablo Cody is trying to like turn everything up to 11 because at the time she was a new screenwriter. She was just sort of getting started. And I wonder if she felt, and there's no way for me to know this without talking to her directly, but like, I wonder if she felt like I really have to be over the top and kind of crass because that's what's going to get people to come mm-hmm. see this movie. And you, I mean, like, because we see each film she does is like a little more toned down until we get to something like Tully, which is 
really subtle in some nice ways and still funny and still moving, but not like he gave me a wedding. I mean, I guess obviously the protagonists are different. Like high schoolers do say a lot of weird stuff that makes no sense and is stupid. But I think too, high high schoolers, especially when it comes to sexuality, are more crass about sexuality because like Mm -hmm. they're testing things out and they want to sound more experienced and cool about sex when like secretly they're all like kind of terrified about of it in some sort of way. Yeah, you know, or most of them are. I mean, I guess my the. TLDR of this is like I think the bones are good mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the bones of the movie are good and I would say like at its core this might this is probably a feminist movie but there's a lot of stuff going on that sort of rubs me the wrong way now that didn't when it first came out well as we have mentioned it's not intersectional feminism so if it's not intersectional is it really feminism Fair. that's Kinda true what we talked about last time um or last other side. Um, I do want to talk, kind of like going off the whole like feminism thing, about how much emphasis is placed on the body in this movie. Obviously, the title is Jennifer's Body, and the female body sort of seems to be like an obsession of this movie, um, as sort of like this vessel to be possessed mm-hmm. and for things to happen in, but also this like mysterious place. And I, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the devil's kettle, like the hole there where the she whirlpool. sacrificed is obviously extremely yeah, it's obviously yeah. extremely vaginal. Yes. Um, and I was just wondering, like, what do you guys think about that? Like, I feel like I'm not making this Stuff up. Stuff goes in and never comes like, out. That, that was very purposeful. Yeah. It's introduced in the very beginning. It plays a very pivotal role in what happens to Jennifer. Why Why is... Okay, so, like, kind of breaking this down. Why is this movie called Jennifer's Body? Um, and what do we do with all of these like vaginal references and imagery and bodies of water and things like that? I mean, I think to some extent... You start to question at some point in the movie, is Jennifer really there or is it just a demon piloting her body? And it's hard to say because we don't see very much of Jennifer before she... Right, because she sucks beforehand, too. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's not... So, like, you start to wonder, like, how much of this thing is Jennifer and how much of it is a demon? And so, there, in one sense, it's like Jennifer's body isn't the body that Jennifer and this demon inhabit or, like that the demon inhabits. But also, I think you're right. There's so much emphasis on not just Jennifer's body, but, like, women's bodies in general. Yeah. Um, Like, Jennifer's really touchy with Needy and, like, grabs her boobs at one point. They hold hands, too. I don't know. When when she gets stabbed at the end, she goes, my tit. And (laughs) Needy has to say, no, your heart. To say, like, it's not about your body. It's, like, what's on the inside that's being destroyed. Like, it's not all about your tits, you know? And I think, so part of it, right, is, like, in occult movies, the woman is the vessel for whatever spirit the men are fighting with, which is what we see here again. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Which... I mean, I know that we're not totally subverting any tropes here, but I feel like at at this point, mm-hmm. we have some overcorrection happening with, like, Jennifer's being super powerful. It's like, okay, but now she's bad. Like, <laughs> now she's evil. Like, can we, can we, like, dial it back a little bit so that she's powerful yeah. and also good? Because that would be kind of a nice, you know, mid- area to be in that a person can actually inhabit 
in real in the real world. I know that that's not what the goal of this is, but right. So we have like that overcorrection of like um, actually she's going to penetrate men instead, uh, which is you know like the alien thing, right? Like she rips into them. Like we even see like on the other side of the partition when she eats Colin in that weird place that's abandoned and haunted and would never exist in real life. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, and he's like, this isn't your house. And she's like, doy, no. Yeah, there's no things in here that require, like, I could not live in here. There's no, like, forks even, no toaster, nothing that I need. And yet, she, he still goes Yeah, in. but that's the thing, right? He's like, she's... Well, he thinks he's gonna get laid. And then so. she's behind that partition, and yes. she's on top and tearing into him, which mm-hmm. is uh, somewhat sub- subversion, I think. And then I had another point, too. I, th- I feel like we... I feel like we need an ask a man to be like, hey, would you still go into this totally horrible haunted well, here's house? The thing. You would have to ask a teenage boy because right. teenage boys are thirsty AF. Yeah. And I think like what a teenage boy would do is different from what an adult would do. God, I hope you know? so. You know, Not that much different, though. Not that much different because I've lived in some real <laughs> shithole <laughs> tenements and dudes would be like, this is so nice. <laughs> you really live here? <laughs> Where's your room at? Enough. You know, like, so. Yeah. You guys are parked on the lawn like a bunch of rednecks. That's so cool and refreshing. No, it's not. <laughs> it's trashy. <laughs> what, what are teenage boys? I don't know. Thirsty. Vagina thirsty. Clearly. Um, that's what we were talking about, right? Is like all the vaginas in this, in this movie. Yeah, all the vaginas. I also love how when we see Megan Fox or Jennifer's face turn into... Uh, that monster teeth vagina, and then she mm-hmm. turns sideways, and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. that's a vagina with teeth. Vagina <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Up in this movie, I thought yeah. that was pretty fun. Yeah, I thought the phrasing of "hell is a teenage girl" instead of like "hell is being a teenage girl" was interesting. Right. So that that's sort of like a big important quote, right? Hell is a teenage girl. Yeah. What does that mean? It means you can have a demon. <laughs> From hell. Inside you. Inside you. <laughs> In a literal sense. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I mean, like, when when I hear um, teenage girls talked about in a negative way like that, it's usually about kind of how teenage girls can sort of be nasty to each other, right. um, even if they're friends. And so I guess I was, like, trying to apply this to their frenemyship. And, um, I love that term. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> That's awesome. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just, it just came out. Hmm. I'm just, yeah, I'm just talking around an idea, it's, but I, do, I don't know what great. it is. Well, the original quote is like, hell, it, it is in fact hell is other people, right? You're right. Yeah. But it's not yeah. everyone anymore. Now it's just girls, right? Just teenage girls. Right. I don't. Just teenage girls. And I think it's okay because a teenage girl says it, but also not really because then you're telling other people it's okay to say it. By the way, you guys, I had never seen this before and I had also never seen, I didn't remember anything from the trailer. This is not what I thought it was about. (laughs) What did you think it was going to be about? Like just seeing who was in it, like just seeing Megan Fox looking the way that she does in this, and the way Amanda Seyfried is made to look like the poor nerdy girl. I thought it. Was I don't like believe that. She also. was gonna want like, to take over uh... <laughs> Megan Fox's body or something. Like I thought it was some kind of like teenage jealousy possession thing that was gonna happen. It, that's not at all what it was. <laughs> but. <laughs> 
Yeah, I didn't even bother to watch the trailer again. So I was just purely surprised by everything. I didn't know there was going to be a, a devil's kettle. I didn't know Adam Brody <laughs> was going to appear and like ruin an hour of my life. Um, and sing. I thought he was my, the my best character. That is the I've ever seen. And I was like to the point where I was like, is it just bad on purpose? I think so. Because it's making fun of this. But it's like, again, it was like almost too bad for, it to feel <laughs> like, oh, for me to be okay with how bad it was. It. <laughs> yes. Through the trees. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> emo music I always looks like it's being lip synced to me. Yes. Oh, yeah, Susan, didn't you have a question about emo music that you wanted to? Yeah, well, it's not even just about emo music. It's just like I was wondering, I said out loud while, while we were watching this last night, like, is this whole thing just making fun of emo culture? Because it feels like, first of all, like, I mean, even if you look at every single music band poster that's in the background of any scene, like, it is like, it's Fallout Boy, it's Motion City soundtrack. There are several men with eyeliner on. By the way, all the men's eyeliner is, like, just really poorly applied. They don't have fine motor skills like we do. <laughs> like, the the people who have, like, who are painted as the worst characters are the ones that, like, sort of look the most emo. Yeah. Obviously, they make fun of that band a ton, and Low Shoulder is kind of the perfect. I love that. Name yeah, for like a shitty emo band, but it really is. <laughs> it, I don't know, and this is another reason why it felt very like two thousand four to me because all of that, those those bands, um, and like the band T shirts that you see around, and like the trying too hard to look emo. <laughs> Situation was like very 2004. Straight out of world. like 2004 hot topic. Um, oh, do you remember the term poser? Oh, yeah. That came up in this movie, and I was like, yeah. man, we gotta bring that shit back. We gotta, yep, that's coming back. <laughs> yeah, it just felt like everything was was making fun of that type of... I mean, even Chip. To, Chip had, like, the classic emo haircut. He wasn't really... He did. He had sad hair. Yeah, he didn't appear... I mean, he wasn't, like, the eyeliner... That's what we called hair it. situation. His hair was very But he floppy. was, like, sort of a whiny dude who had that hair. I couldn't get over Chip because... That that actor also plays until he takes off his shirt, and then it's like, (laughs) oh, you're grown. Two years later, that actor plays young Neil in Scott Pilgrim versus the World, and his whole role in that movie is just to stand around and be like, "Hey, hey, guys, can I?" Can I play in the band? That's how it felt like when he was trying to get inside Needy. Hey guys, can I play? And Media was like, I guess so, but I'm going to think about Jennifer the whole yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, I, had, I wanted to say about the emo culture thing. In this movie is the first time I've seen anybody make out with somebody with a lip ring, and I have always wondered <laughs> what you do. Did it answer I'm your I'm not questions? even joking. Was this movie instructional for you? In I am regard? 90% sure I have done that. And you want to answer that question then? There were a lot of piercings. It's like hard to say if, it, if there was a lip piercing. For sure. These were the people I was dating. But like, th- I was like, this is why I'm like, 2004? Oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, <laughs> you could you could pinpoint the no, month, I, couldn't you? You were like, this happened March 19th, 2004. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a really specific time in my life. <laughs> So I, I want to talk about Needy because we haven't really, like, we've kind of talked about Needy, but why? Okay, Needy is a very 
weird nickname for someone named Anita. Yes. Uh, why is she called Needy, do you guys think? I mean, I was guessing Jennifer started calling her that because Jennifer's me. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was thinking too. Jennifer, Jennifer named her that and Jennifer <laughs> is a bitch, which is really funny because I feel like Jennifer was more needy in this movie than yes. needy was. Definitely. Yes, definitely. But people project yeah. what they hate about themselves. True. That is True. so smart. You smart. You smart. <laughs> and we just projected that on you, so we must hate how smart we are. No. Is that right? Is that how that works? <laughs> That's not true. I think so. Mm. But the transitive property seems to follow. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So we answer that question. Check. <laughs> how do we feel about me <laughs> as a character? I feel like we've already talked about how we feel about Jennifer. We hate her. What about Nita? I think I have something to get against Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> Is it how big her eyes are? It that's part of it, and I think it's also like I really don't like her as Cosette. Oh God, Lim is Rob, and Ugh. I don't like her in Mamma Mia. Like she's just had a lot of unfortunate roles for her. But going back and watching Jennifer's Body, I'm like, yeah, I used to be okay with her. What about Mean like, Girls? She was, she's so she was good. I loved her in Mean Girls. I mean, she's playing. So I really dumb. liked her in in Big Love. Oh, yeah. Also, I forgot she was in that. Yeah, I have a real hard time believing that she's the dork at the school. Oh yeah, well I'm glad I'm really glad that they didn't push that that too much. Like she has a boyfriend and clearly like isn't super nerdy all the time. Um, If they had tried to like, I think it's more that like she's a dork compared to Jennifer. Yeah, yeah, she's just like a normal yeah human right woman. Yeah, Um, I also and I know that we're we already talked about the makeout scene a little bit, but I just. Okay, well, I just wanted to say that even as a heterosexual woman, the makeout scene between a man or what are their name? They're actually Needy and um, Jennifer is way better than the whole sex scene with Chip. Oh yeah, which is super boring oh, and God. just like very much like why isn't this over? Yeah, part of why that's so bad. The sex scene with Chip is Needy is like gasping for air and looking scared and like and thinking about Jennifer and things and Chip like, is she whispers, so out of tune uh, with her that he's like I must be doing a great job right now yeah he like when he's done he says wait are you okay am I too big oh lord <laughs> and that was I, my favorite like, funny moment by the tanks. way that was the funniest moment it's like yes because of course she's gonna be like yep that's exactly the problem and i was like nah bro yeah. yeah a lot of the humor in this didn't actually <laughs> land for me but that i laughed at like genuinely <laughs> right <laughs> i have a final thought about that i like really really hated adam brody in this <laughs> just I can't think of, like, what else I've seen him in, or... You didn't watch the OC? I didn't. I didn't either. Oh, my God. So good. So good. But, yeah, I just, like... I mean, I know we're not meant to like him as a character, but, like, I just thought he was actively, like, really bad (laughs) in this. He Like, he... There's sort of, like, an irreverence, because he's like, yeah, we're gonna kill this girl. No big deal. Don't you guys want to be famous? Like, he's Mm -hmm. just so chill about it. That it's kind of funny to me, but he is supposed to be, I think, super annoying and terrible. Well, what he and Megan Fox have in common is that neither one of them have very good comedic timing. And I yeah. thought he was the funniest one. Really? 
I yeah, I enjoyed yeah, them. And the part when they're like singing eight six seven five three nine, like right <laughs> yes. before they kill her, I was like, "This yes. is amazing." Jenny I can't believe yes, that. same. The one that made me laugh though in that scene is like the other dude with the emo hair who just like. He's only is cut to for reaction shots the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> I actually thought Needy was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, like, of, of everyone, but I I don't know. I just, something was not working for me about Adam Brody at all. Sorry, guys. Well, I think that no, this, okay. this genre fusion in particular doesn't work for me. I don't think I'm the target audience. Like, I understand that this is a decent movie. I just didn't like it very much because I don't like that particular mashup. Yeah. But, I mean, I was like doing the hot takes to Emily while I was watching this. And I was like, okay, this sacrifice scene is pretty funny. Like, <laughs> okay. Like, this is pretty good. Forgot about that. I actually do like horror comedy. And yeah, I still... Most people do, I think. I think I'm in the minority. I don't know. Like, sometimes it works for me and sometimes it doesn't. Jennifer's body works for me. I think what didn't work in this is, like, maybe the horror wasn't... I don't know. I feel like there almost wasn't enough of either thing to me right but that's always the case i feel like in my experience because it's like you have to half-ass both mm-hmm. <laughs> to get them both in there but that's just that again that's just me i'm just not the target on it doesn't make it bad it just means it yeah is. well that that's jennifer's body everyone <laughs> through the trees <laughs> Okay, so um, now we are going to uh, cut over to my interview with Grady Hendrix. And this is really funny that Mary Kay is here because she was actually here, um, or she was actually with me when I uh, interviewed Grady Hendrix Mm -hmm. the first time. Did you know he has a white suit? He was Mm -hmm. wearing a white suit. He was wearing a white suit, and there was not a stain on it. That is a talent in and of itself. I mean, I feel like that deserves my respect alone. That's really funny, because I just looked at the bottom of my foot, and I have something on me. Like, <laughs> Grady Hendrix, teach us your He would ways. be so ashamed. How do you stay so clean? I'm like, I'm dirty. Yeah. What is this? <laughs> so that interview was great. However, um, due to technical difficulties, I do not have that interview any longer. Um, oh, no. So Grady Hendrix was super cool and yes. agreed to do the interview over again which um, I am supremely grateful for. So we have this interview for you. Um, We talk about lots of things, including We Sold Our Souls. Very quickly, I'm just going to read a brief synopsis of that. In the 1990s, heavy metal band Dirt Work was poised for breakout success, but then lead singer Terry Hunt embarked on a solo career and rocketed to stardom as Coffin, leaving his fellow bandmates to rot in rural Pennsylvania. Two decades later, former guitarist Chris Pulaski works as the night manager of a Best Western. She's tired, broke, and unhappy. Everything changes when she discovers a shocking secret from her heavy metal past. Turns out that Terry's meteoric rise to success may have come at a price of Chris's very soul. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. Um, This revelation prompts Chris to hit the road, reunite with the rest of her bandmates, and confront the man who ruined her life. It's a journey that will take her from the Pennsylvania Rust Belt to the Satanic Rehab Center, and finally to a Las Vegas music festival that's darker than any mortar Tolkien could imagine. A furious power ballad about never giving up, even in the face of overwhelming odds, We Sold Our Soul, is is an epic journey into the heart of a conspiracy-crazed, paranoid country that seems to have lost its very soul. 
where only a girl with a guitar can save us all. That is so good, and I yes. cannot wait to read it. Um, yes. So, Same. cutting over the interview now. Da, da, da. So, hello, everybody. Um, I am here with Grady Hendricks, the author of several books, including his latest, which is coming out at the beginning of September, right? Yes, September 18th. September 18th, so mid-September. Um, we sold our souls, so you can grab it for September and read it and get excited for October, because most of us cannot wait for October to start reading scary stories. So let me just start by asking you about your new book, which I just got to read and I really enjoyed. Oh, good. Yeah, it was great. Well, I was, I was nervous because it's a little bit, it's a little darker than my other books. So I, I, I was nervous if people would like it or not. One of the things that stuck out to me was, you know, I've, I used to play music. I used to be in a band. And so I was just kind of curious about like how much insider information do you have about being in a band? Like, have you been in a band before? You know, people that play in bands? No, I'm a, I'm a terrible, terrible musician. I took, you know, doing this book, I actually took guitar lessons because I just need to sort of learn like how playing a guitar feels and how to hold it and how you learn it and stuff. So I took like, I don't know, 10 or so guitar lessons just I mean really I can play the riff from smoke on the water and that's about it um oh and the Peter Gunn theme um but you do feel like a badass when you've got an electric guitar strapped on but I went to a university in the early 90s so I went to NYU and a bunch of my friends were all in bands and um it was right at the beginning of the sort of whole riot girl thing. So we'd be going out to see like, you know, to CBGBs and to brownies and stuff, seeing like the Luna chicks and bikini kill and L seven. And then my friend, you know, everyone had a band except me. So I was always the guy who wound up having to like haul people's stuff around or, you know, going to shows where you're one of like three people there. Um, and then, uh, and so I saw it that way. And one of my, and I talked to a couple of my friends from those days about touring and stuff. Cause they really did the whole, like get in a van and tour the country thing and go from club to club and sleep on people's floors. And I also, um, my next door neighbor from growing up married a dude named Tom Youngblood, who's the lead guitar player for a metal band called Camelot with a K. Um, and Tom was super duper generous with his time. And I went to see them play some and he answered all kinds of questions. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm really just sort of latching on to people's brains and lives like a some kind of disgusting vampire and sucking them dry of their own experiences. I think as writers, we have to do that a lot because, you know, yeah. everyone says write what you know, but you only know some, so much from your own life. And it's kind of boring if you don't. You, you know, you should use that position of power to sort of like explore and exploit other people's lives, right? Well, it's also like one of the reasons I like writing is um, it gives me an excuse to talk to people and bug people. Like I really like doing research and like, you know, interviewing people and talking to them. And so I, I really like that part of writing. And, um, you know, I, I tend to over research. I don't know if there's such a thing as over research, but like, when I was doing my best friend's exorcism, like I had like weather, like the weather from the newspapers um, for all the days. Um, well, yeah, you know, because you know that place. that one review on Amazon, it's going to tell you like I was in that town in 
1985 and that's not what the weather was like then you know right exactly um well and it's also just like i feel like really a lot of the time you get so many more interesting places if you don't make assumptions and actually find out how stuff really works and how it was um you know it's it just keeps you away from cliches and and gets you to, to a more interesting place um you know, and it's also the, the world is a big and confusing place. And so it's nice to look at it through a certain lens. So like I'm writing a book right now set in 1993. Um, and so I went back and read, it takes place over about a year and a little bit extra. And so I went back to my hometown where it's set in South Carolina and read every newspaper um, for that year, but specifically looking at it through sort of the lens of this book. And so you find all these little clues and bits of things you can use and steal and organize. It's like, it's like suddenly like, you know, it's like if you're a JFK conspiracy buff, the whole world is about, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald and the grassy knoll and second shooters and magic bullets. So it's like looking at the the entire year of my hometown's existence um, through the lens of this book. It's, it's all about blood and missing children and, you know, contamination fears and things like that. Awesome. That sounds really good. So what do you think like the weirdest research you did for this new book would be? We sold ourselves, you know, a lot of it, I was really trying to use some new horror vocabulary because I feel like there's a whole, I, I was a huge conspiracy buff, um, sort of growing up and in high school. And then up until about 2000 with Y2K, I was after 2001, I kind of lost my interest in conspiracy theories, but I really think there's a whole language of horror in conspiracy theories, you know, MK ultra mind control and, and, you know, swatting and, um, you know, chemtrails and false flag operations and crisis actors and all this stuff. And so I really went down the conspiracy rabbit hole on this book and, um, and we sold our souls and and spent a lot of time in the conspiracy community, which I hadn't done in about gosh, over 15 years. And it's a really it's a really dark place. I mean, I actually got really, really depressed and I didn't quite know how depressed um, until I was sort of done with the book. I'd finished revisions. I sent in the copy ads and I actually deleted my membership to some of these boards. And I just felt such a sense of like relief and like like the sunshine came back in. Um because there's the the thing that had really changed between I guess pre two thousand conspiracies and c- conspiracy world now is there's this real sense of despair and hopelessness now, and I felt like pre two thousand I don't know you you wanted to wake people up but but you know you thought if people could just get together they could change the world and do I don't know there was there was there was some kind of solution there and now. I find that the center of these narratives is very bleak and very hopeless and very, you know, we're basically screwed from before we're born. We never stood a chance. The whole world is a machine and you're just oil in the gears. And and there's no point in doing anything because you can't you can't fight it. It's too big. Uh, and it was here before you were born and it was going to be here after. And just just the only thing you can do is sort of like see the shape of the machine that's going to kill you. And it was, it's just the hopelessness of it really is really tough. It really, I see people who really invest a lot of time and energy in this stuff and I get it, you know? Um, and this is a really meaningful narrative for them and it just is crushing, 
You know, it was really, it was really depressing. I'm not doing a good job of selling this book, but it was really like, it was just depressing. It was very, it made me really sad actually for, for, for almost a year. It was kind of tough. Is that one of the reasons you're, you're worried about this book? You're worried it's going to make people sad, depressed? Not so much sad and depressed, but I was so depressed and sad when I wrote it. Um, and, and it's a bleaker kind of darker book. And, um, and it's a little more hard on your sleeve for me. Um, you know, it's very much, uh, you know, I do think, I do think there's a point in sort of fighting and struggling, even if you never win kind of the fights, the point. Um, but you know, when you put it against such horrible odds, it can really just seem futile. And, um, and, and, you know, there's a part of this book that's very much, this was going to be a book about a dude. It was going to be my book about like angry guys and how sort of like anger is such a dude thing. Um, and it's certainly been a huge part of my life. And it's one of those things that really can put the fuel in your engine to sort of power you through some tough times. But it also like is, um, it's a, it's a fuel that like, you know, it can really tear up your engine if you run on it too long. And so I really wanted to write a book about that. And um, I was at a, an election night party, actually, in November 2016. And like, my wife and I got there kind of late, like around 940, which was around when the Florida results were coming. And sort of sort of the night had sort of taken a turn. And we were going and, you know, we were very in for Clinton and we were going to a house of friends of ours who were really, really in the tank for Clinton and had done a lot of work for the campaign. And like, it was bleak. It was just like, people weren't talking to each other. And, you know, like people were in the bathroom and not coming out and they were on their phones and just leave me alone. Don't talk to me. And, um, we left though. We kind of snuck out of the party after about an hour. And, um, as we got in the elevator to go down, I was like, you know, this book has to be about a woman. Like if you're going to, if, if you're going to write a book about a character who's been sort of pushed aside and told they have no value and told that they're worthless and not worth listening to and told they just need to calm down and sit down and just let it roll over them. It kind of had to be a woman. And by the time I got out in the lobby of the building, I was like, Oh yeah, well it's Chris. And I sort of knew my main character, but so, um, so yeah, all kinds of things, being, being too timely, being too on the nose, all that stuff really worries me about this book. And I just worry about my books in general. I worry a lot. <laughs> I do too. I understand that. Um, so that is something that we, we have talked about a little bit before is that all your novels are, um, have women as main characters. Obviously, like that's the reason that you chose Chris made Chris a woman in this book, but why is it, do you think that you've written about mostly women in all of your books? Uh, I have an easier time. I, I really, when I write dudes, I really, I don't know. It's weird. I always, I, I just don't, I find it kind of boring. I think, I think writing about guys kind of bores me. I am a guy, you know, it's not, it's interesting to me. Um, and you know, when I spent my high school life sort of like, you know, as a guy, you spend it obsessed with girls, right? How do, how do I, what do they do? What are they talking about? How do I seem interesting to them? How can I make them, um, you know, think I'm cool. Um, and, and I was also, you know, I have three older sisters, my parents are divorced and I live with my mom. Like, I, I don't know. I just like, I kind of just wind up writing about women, and part of it's kind of that mask 
theory thing, you know, where like in theater, like, you know, you put on a mask and having an identity that's not your own frees you up to, to like, you know, not sort of self-doubt and to, to, to make braver, bolder choices. Although I hate the word bravery in the context of writing. Um, but like, and so, so to me having an identity or a character I'm writing about, who's not me, who I don't see when I look in the mirror, um, I guess it just makes me more thoughtful and, 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 and gives me, I don't know, some kind of arm's length removed from my main character where I can actually write about them more interestingly than writing about a dude where it's like, well, people think this is me. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I don't know. Maybe I just hate God. Maybe I hate myself. I don't know. So one of the things we talked, I, I we talked on the podcast about super extra grande by Yas, who uh, is actually in a metal band. So one of the things we talked about on the podcast was what what we would be like if we were in a metal band and what the name of our metal band would be. So I thought I would ask you this question. Maybe the name of your metal band would be Dirtwork and then that's that was your answer in the book. But are any of these characters in the book who you would be in a metal band or would you picture yourself differently if you were in a band? I really hope I was tuck, to be honest. Like, I would really hope I was just the solid, really skilled, really expert, really chill bass player. But I know I wouldn't be. I know I'd be probably Scotty Rocket. You know, I'd be the asshole who can't play that well, who who picks fights, who jumps all over the place, who's just a pain, you know? Um in any metal band, I'd be the mascot. I'd be the salacious crumb. <laughs> um, and it's funny, after I wrote the book, I met this dude who had a metal band, mostly in high school and like, you know, after university. And um, But they had played around and gotten some regard. And I can't remember the name of the band now, but oh my God, they were fantastic. They had all their props had names and all their characters had names. And they were, it was just, everything was so perfectly named. And I was like, you know, you think of the best band names and song names when you're like sitting around, like getting stoned with your friends and that's what you're focused on. And like, you know, if you're sitting there behind a keyboard going, what was a good metal name? You just come up with dog shit. And so I really like, like dirt work was the best I could do. So I'm going to stick with that. And the, you know, the umlauts are really important. Umlauts and two U's, you know, Motley Crue really proved that double umlauts mean double metal. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so another really exciting project that I saw you mention on Facebook is Satanic Panic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the the movie that's getting, I don't know, hopefully produced right now. That's the, uh, you know, I wrote it for this guy, Ted Gagan, who directed a movie, We're Still Here. And we wrote a movie together called Mohawk that he directed. Um, and I originally wrote it for him and we sort of worked on it together. But basically it's about... Um, uh, a pizza delivery woman who's sort of like beat down by life and she's doing a delivery to a gated community of kind of one percenters and they turn out to be Satanists because, you know, obviously the one percent are Satanists and they've ordered pizza because they're in sort of an all night summoning ritual and you get hungry. Um, you want to keep your, you want to keep your, um, your, your blood sugar up and, um, they've lost their virgin because every good satanic cult needs to sacrifice a virgin and they discover she is a virgin. Um, and so it's sort of pizza girl versus uh Satanist, um, which is a lot of fun. And, you know, right now they're just looking for a director, um, which sort of shapes the next step of like rewrites and notes and all that stuff. That's really exciting. Pizza versus Satan. I feel like pizza has an edge, you know, people really love pizza. It's hard to find someone who hates pizza. Um, because usually those people have been murdered by the age of 11. Um, 
the community bands together against them and drowns them in a sack. Uh, obviously, like all your work is um, sort of like within the horror genre. Um, so how did you how did that end up being what you got into writing? And would you ever write like a romance or a sci fi or anything else? You know, I, I I'm as surprised as anyone else that I write horror. Like, honestly, like I literally just write the stuff that makes me happy or, you know, what I see in the world around me. And then the marketing department tells me it's horror. Um, so, and you also kind of, you are what you eat. And like, I, I do read a lot of, I guess, horror-y stuff more than I read science fiction. So that sort of like makes sense. Um, so I'd be terrible at writing a romance cause I haven't read enough romances. You know, when I did, a. Uh, uh, my best friend's exorcism, you know, I, I sat down and read a ton of female friendship books because I wanted to, I didn't want to be a faker in the genre and do something that I thought was cool and original that 9 million other writers had done before. Um, so, so you have to sort of know what you're writing. And I guess maybe it's because this is what I read. And especially after paperbacks from hell, which is like reading horror novels has become sort of a part of my livelihood, um, and pays part of my mortgage. Like that's more what I read than ever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like everyone kind of, you wind up in life sort of doing the thing, making a living based on the stuff you did the most, you know? Um, and for a while I worked for a parapsychological research organization, like four or five years in the early two thousands, late nineties. And I really just answered an ad to be an office administrator and, and wound up there. Um, and so I guess that probably had a big influence because it was like, you know, I got really interested in this idea that, I mean, fiction ghosts and real ghosts are so different. Um, but, uh, real ghost in quotes, but, um, I, I got really interested in sort of sitting and maybe it's, you know, you wind up where your interests take you or you get your interest from where you wind up, but really this interest of in, in, this idea of death and sitting with that a bit. And, you know, that horror is only genre that does that. And I feel like Death is kind of what gives our lives meaning. It's why vampires are so boring, you know? They just never die, so they really have nothing to talk about. There's no narrative arc to their lives. It's just always, always velvet, you know, pants and pirate shirts and blood-sucking and orgies. Um, and so, you know, horror is kind of the only genre that's sort of death-focused. Um, and not that I'm morbid or anything, but, like, you know, a spoiler alert, people die. So like, and I, and I don't see a lot of places talking about that in a way that's interesting rather than just morbid and boring, except for horror. So I got, I gathered two things from what you just said. One, you don't believe in ghosts, question mark. And two, I guess you're never planning on writing a vampire story. I'm writing a vampire novel right now. Oh, okay. So your, your challenge is to make vampires not boring? Exactly. I, I probably will fail. Uh, vampires are overwhelmingly boring. Um, and also overwhelmingly nineties. Like there is, it's really hard to get the nineties out of the vampire. Um, so partially this book's set in the nineties, which helps a little bit, but like vampires just reek of 1994 or five, you know, there's just, I don't know, man, vampires to me are like new metal and like crushed velvet, like those black velvet dresses everyone was wearing. And like, goth being new and exciting and entering the, ah, it's just so tedious. Anyways, uh, believing ghosts. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to Clinton that question and say, what do you mean by believe and in and ghosts? Um, I think that 
it is a really, really common experience for people to see something or experience something that seems supernatural or like a haunting or like a ghost. Um, I am not qualified to comment on whether that's a trick of the light, a psychological kind of like moment, you know, like a mind trick or a trick of perception and the psychology of perception, or whether indeed, you know, the spirits of our dear departed uh, survive bodily death and just kind of float around like assholes and don't seem to do anything except pop out at inopportune moments. That'd be um, sort of a depressing way to spend your afterlife, you know? Think about this. I am in an apartment that's, you know, the nice thing about living in New York is like, you are almost always living somewhere where a bunch of people have died before you. So I'm in an apartment where there's probably been deaths. And if there have been, according to the rules of ghosty world, um, there's like a bunch of people sitting in here. They can't watch a movie. They can't put on headphones. They can't read a book. Literally all they can do is listen to me give this interview. Like they must be so ready to blow their brains out. But surprise, they're already dead. Even death doesn't provide any relief. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's sort of the same reason that vampires are boring. Ghosts are kind of boring because they're just kind of stuck in eternal sticking aroundness. Right? I mean, that's the exciting thing about being alive. It's like, you're gonna die. Like, how's it gonna happen? That's exciting. Like, you know, like, will it will an air conditioner, one of those window units fall out of a 14 story building and just squish you like a like Warner Brothers cartoon character, you could get shot in a bank hold up, you could get murdered by a serial killer, you could just sort of pass away in a swoon, you could get scared to death, you could be attacked by animal. There are so many awesome ways to die and so many but it's like no matter how it happens it's going to be the most exciting death to you ever and between now and that death you get a whole like narrative arc a whole like live action larping experience to sort of develop like it's death is really really exciting it's very inspirational yeah i've actually got on my little um laptop pop-up clock I've got a, a timer because I went to the actuarial tables and sort of ran all the numbers on my life and lifestyle um, and, and sort of entered in a little countdown clock. So every time I open up my laptop, I got a little clock that says there are 43 years, six months and 30 days until you die, you know, statistically speaking. Uh, and obviously that changes. So I say that every time. Um, so, yeah, and I find that exciting. One day you're going to open up your computer and it's going to say suddenly you have three hours. Yeah, exactly. Like jump forward like this or just be like, you are dead. Oh, wow. Um, th so this is kind of interesting. You've actually told me how you think you're going to die. Well, I've always had a suspicion that they will find my corpse face down in the center of a corn maze. Um, and since we talked, I've had a little more to that vision. I think I'm probably going to be clutching one of those little withered apple face dolls, you know, um, that people used to sell at like folk fairs and things. So like, I really think there's going to be sort of a folk art thing to my death. Interesting. Yeah. Well, or probably that's the other thing. It takes a lot for someone else's death to be interesting, but like your death, you could just die in your armchair, but it'd still be really interesting to you, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the climax of your life. Exactly. I have to talk to you about my best friend's exorcism because that's my favorite. I love that book. I make everyone read it. I have read it more than one time. I listened to the audiobook and then I bought the book so that I could. Thank you. Yeah, because, you know, the artwork is really cool. Well, yeah, Doogie, Doogie and Hugh uh, Fleming did an amazing, amazing job with that cover. So 
I have the hardcover with the uh, yearbook stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I actually, I know a, a lot of people are freaking out about the paperback cover, which is also beautiful. It looks sort of like an old VHS tape. But I actually really like the hardcover because it's got all those cool like yearbooky things in it. That you don't get yeah. with the paperback. Well, that yearbook stuff was so much fun to do. And like, I went back through all my old yearbooks. And actually, Tim O'Donnell, who's the art director on that, Doogie Horner was the art director for the paperback. But Tim, like, actually got all these like teenage kids to write those inscriptions inside, like people do in your yearbook, to make sure all the handwritings were like authentically teenage, but also all different. Um, and there's a secret, like, uh, uh, Easter egg that's like another step in Abby and Gretchen's relationship buried in one of the um, the inscriptions. But yeah, that was super fun to do. And I got to put in my own senior class photo in there, which I feel like people needed to see. People needed to see the glory. Behold me rising at the end of the book like the sun, radiant and full of splendor. <laughs> and can I just also jump in for a sec, just because we were getting near that area. You know, one of the things writing We Sold Our Souls, I spent so much time with Joan Jett like reading about Joan Jett and listening to Joan Jett give interviews and watch her giving and watching her play and everything. Cause she was a little bit of a model for my main character, Chris. Oh my God. Joan Jett is freaking amazing. She's like the most incredible rock star ever. And I don't understand why people like rock stars, like, you know, like people from Bon Jovi or like, you know, Drake, when you've got Joan Jett, who is basically a, a demigod walking amongst us. Like she's so badass. She's done everything. She's been everywhere. She's an incredible player and she's enormously supportive of other women and like female musicians and stuff in a way that is actually really meaningful beyond just like a bumper sticker. Like, Jesus, like if, if anyone out there listening to this, if this makes you do, if this makes you think about Joan Jett for five seconds more than you normally would, I feel like my work on this world is done. All right. So everyone listening, go check out some Joan Jett stuff right away. It's, it's a requirement. Do you even like, like, this isn't a generational thing. Like when I say Joan Jett, you know, I'm talking about, right? Yes. Yes. I okay, okay, thank God. I think my, my person like that is, um, Kim Gordon. And actually oh, I, sure. I listened to her audiobook, which she read herself. Um, yeah. Girl in the band. Oh yeah. I read the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. It was really good. My only problem with Kim Gordon is I had a problem with that whole sort of East village scene. They, they all knew like they all knew they all had a pretty good sense of how cool they were at the time. Um, and I, and I, I guess I really like, I, I felt like irony and sort of like that sort of knowing your own image and the value of that and owning that was like so important. I, I feel like I sort of seduced myself into thinking that like in the seventies and early eighties, it was less self-conscious. But then again, you know, you look at all the hair metal bands and you're like, yeah, that was pretty self-conscious back then. It was full of irony. Um, so I think I'm just deluding myself into thinking old things are better things and the older it is, the better. Um, but yeah, I think that book is fantastic. And I, I really admire how sort of willing to go there she is about her whole like marriage with Thurston Moore and her family life and everything, which is, which is, you know, she's pretty un, unforgiving about to everyone involved in that. Absolutely. And I have to say the other book that really blew my mind is um, there's a book called 
Van Halen Rising. Um, and, you know, I got to say, I fell in love with Van Halen. I know Van Halen isn't technically metal, but when they came out, they were considered like, you know, they were considered sort of in the heavier end of the spectrum and sort of more metally and everything. Um, although now all those early metal acts like Black Sabbath and even even sometimes Metallica or um, Iron Maiden almost sound like pop. Um to us now, uh, just because metal's gotten so so deathcore and thrashy and sped up. Um, but Van Halen Rising is this huge, deeply researched book that literally begins with like Van Halen meeting in middle school, and then like goes through them signing their first out like record deal. Like it's just it's like every house party they played, every backyard barbecue they played. And it's really amazing to read this book and like, God, they just never gave up. They just kept going. Like they faced a moment so many times when any sane person would have gone, that's it, we're done. And like they just didn't quit. And it's amazing. And like David Lee Roth wasn't that good of a singer and sort of bullied his way into the band and then became what he became and sort of played into his strengths and weaknesses. And I don't know, man. It's like, and Van Halen is such a great band when you think, like they wrote a song about Panama called Panama. They like, you know, they wanted to they wanted to write a song about jumping. So they wrote a song called Jump, where literally the lyrics are jump. Like that is the lyric in that entire song. That's it. And like hundreds of thousands of people went and paid money to see them sing that live. I mean, they are geniuses. And they didn't even have to sell their souls to do it. As far as As anyone knows. As far as we know. Exactly. And then you compare it to bands like Bon Jovi, and Bon Jovi had like you know, Bon Jovi had a business manager before they ever even recorded a demo. Like, they were so calculated. Um, bugs me. They're like the Spice Girls of metal or whatever. Spice Girls of metal. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, well, I was going to use this interview to come out to the world and tell everyone that Bon Jovi is my favorite band, but I'm not going to do that now. Yeah, this isn't a safe space if you're a Bon Jovi fan. Yeah, it's not. So one of the things we're talking about on an upcoming episode of the podcast is this, um, there's a new um, series on Hulu, a um, Stephen King series on Hulu called Castle Rock. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know you're a big Stephen King fan, and you've got your whole Stephen King blog. And so I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that. And also, like, are you planning on watching Castle Rock? And... Yeah, we'll, we'll start okay. there. Well, so I am not planning on watching Castle Rock. I'll probably see it at some point, but like, I just, I, I just feel like all I'll do is be the annoying guy who's like, no, no, you, you don't understand. Like, my wife will just be trying to go to sleep, and I'll be like, no, you don't understand. Like, Cujo is clearly not that breed of Saint Bernard they have in there. That is not the way Cujo is supposed. Like, you know, just I'm just going to be irritating. Um, but like, Stephen King is one of those writers. I never thought I'd say this. I mean, I read him as a teenager like everyone does, but like he's a writer who really means a lot to me. And it's funny. I started doing this thing for tour. It took me four or five years. I can't remember anymore to complete, but this reread, I was like, oh, I'll read the first 10 books that Stephen King wrote and sort of write about them as an adult. And I just kept going and wound up doing everything he'd written um, and, and wrapped it up last year. And it just, he wound up being a writer I found so important to me. You know, his life, his books, the way they sort of reflect each other, how he solves certain writing problems, how he like, you know, does his thing and really picking that apart and trying to see how it works. And I just, it's a rabbit hole I could go down infinitely. And one of the reasons it means so much to me is 
I started writing the this great Stephen King reread, which is what it's called because I'm humble like that. Um, but I started doing it and like I had literally maybe just was about to sign the contract for horror store. Like I had never, I'd written novels, but nothing anyone had bought. Like everyone's written. And you just got them in your, your hard drive somewhere. And I started doing it. And so for the next four or five years, I'm reading King and writing about King and thinking about King a lot. Um, even reading those books from the late nineties and early two thousands that are like 12 billion pages each and, and doing my other thing. And, you know, by the time I finally wrapped up a uh, paperbacks from hell had come out and won the Stoker award. And, you know, I had like two novels behind me. I'd written one that was coming out. I'd written paperbacks from hell. Like I'd sort of like was in a different place in my life. And like the one thing that was constant across all that four or five year period was, was reading Stephen King and thinking about Stephen King. And so like, I never want to meet the guy. Like, the king in my head is so different from the one in reality who, like, wears socks and, like, you know, likes his coffee a certain way and, like, you know, enjoys, like, movies I probably don't like or, you know, I just – he's become sort of this, like, spirit animal to me. Um, and so I never, ever want to meet the real person. Um because the one in my head was such a huge part of my life for this really strange period um, that like nothing in reality can do anything but but upset me and make me cry. Because that's often my reaction to things that don't exactly do what I want. I just start crying like a little baby. There's a um, – you're probably going to know the name of this book, but there is a Stephen King book where a girl has – like an imaginary a relationship with like imaginary version of a baseball player. Yeah. The girl who loved Tom Gordon. Yeah. So he's kind of like your Tom Gordon in a way. My Tom Gordon. And I got to say, people hate on that book. That is a fantastic, fantastic book. It's really, it's like, it's, you know, King basically doing YA and it just winds up so much weirder and darker and kind of more moving than I thought it would be. Well, clearly I haven't read it because I couldn't think of the name of it. So maybe I'll have to read that one. Um, what is your favorite Stephen King book? Let's end on that. What, what would you recommend? <laughs> It was weird because a lot of books I read and loved as a kid, like I must have read Salem's Lot like six times growing up. Man, it just did not hold up for me. I, it's still a fantastic, it's a milestone, et cetera, et cetera. I, it just doesn't hold up. There's a lot of early writer stuff in it that's that I think is is he does better later. Um, books I didn't like as a kid wound up being the ones I loved the most. I think Cujo, which I was sort of always like, eh, growing up. To me, that's, I mean, just this enormously ambitious book he wrote. And the Tommyknockers, which I read when it came out and was so disappointed. And I was like, you you betrayed me, Stephen King. I was like 15 or something. Um, but now I read it and I'm like, oh, my God, this still isn't a perfect book. And it has a lot of issues. But this is a real, it's the last book he read, wrote before he was good, uh, went sober. And it's just this mad, epic, visionary kind of like, you know, it's like King just going on this vision quest about America. It's really kind of astonishing. Um, and the only book I got to say that sort of like I loved as a kid and I still loved as an adult is It, which I think is just, uh, you know, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. I mean, it is is phenomenal and fascinating and boring and embarrassing and emotional and moving. And it's just it's just so everything packed in there. Um, you know, I wonder if it's a book that he occasionally looks at and is like, how the hell did I write that? 
Yeah, it was was a very important book for me, too, because I remember I read it in the sixth grade and I carried it around with me everywhere and thought I was like the coolest kid because I was like reading a big 1000 page Stephen King book in the sixth grade. And that's what makes you a cool kid. Yeah, totally. Well, it's probably also gave you some kind of like, you know, spinal deformity carrying that heavy book around everywhere. Jesus. I did. I did have back issues that year, I think. So (laughs) blame it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I love the fact that it is impossible to Google. You cannot Google the word it and come up with any search result even close to that, I think. Or at least that was before the movie. So, wait, have, are you going to watch any of the adaptations, or have you watched? Yeah, them? I saw I saw the It movie, and you know, I just don't even want to talk about the It movie because I feel like such a spoil sport. Like it was fine. There was nothing. It was a it was a perfectly fine movie about a scary clown. It wasn't it. It wasn't you know. It wasn't the book that I read when I was. I think you were maybe girls mature faster than boys. I think I may have read it in seventh grade, but like. Um, and girls are apparently stronger than boys because I didn't carry it around anywhere. But um, but like that book was just everything to me. I really felt like, you know, as a kid, I felt like it was so speaking to me directly as like, you're a hero. You can do this stuff. Like everything bad is for a reason. And then reading it now as an adult, I look at it and I'm like, God, you know, those kids are just such an idealized version of childhood, but these adults are so fallen and real. It's like, it really is a book that just like changes as you get older. So the movie was fine. Not a problem with the movie. I know people love it a lot and that is awesome. And I I love uh, Bill Skarsgård's clown, but like, it's not the book. I'm excited to see how they're going to do the adult version in the next one. Yeah. No, me too. Me too. Absolutely. Um, and I'll go see the next one. I'll go see it in theaters. I will help it make all the money in the world that the first it didn't make. Um, I just, uh, it's just, you know, it's, you know, there's, I don't mind movie adaptations of books. I love them. In fact, like, I, I think they're a lot of fun, but like it in like the shining's another one, the movie and the book to me are just two such separate things. There's no point in even comparing them. Oh, I know. And Stephen King hates the movie. I know. I know. Which is funny. It's interesting because I've read a lot of interviews with King over the years. And it's like, it's interesting to see his attitude go from, yeah, I don't really like this movie. He didn't quite get my book to this really hard and rigid. This, the movie is garbage and it betrayed my book. Like it's, it's weird to see his position sort of hardened like that. Um, and it's also funny. I read, I watched, and I guess I'd never seen before. There's an international cut of the shining that played everywhere, but America. And it's like almost half an hour shorter And watching it, you're really like, wow, gosh, Jack Nicholson's performance is so hammy. And Jesus, this guy's practically crazy from the word go. Like, who would even think of being in an elevator ride with him, let alone a a haunted hotel for six months or five months or however long it is? But then when you watch the – and I realize this because they cut so much out. And, like, when you watch the international – or the American version, which is longer, you're like, yeah, this makes a lot more sense. Yeah, um – Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. I can listen to myself talk literally forever. It's so (laughs) embarrassing. But yeah, this is great. And everybody go grab Grady Hendrix's new book, We Sold Our Souls, which will be available September 18th. Thanks for having me. Can I just ask... Grady Hendrix, if you're listening, please be my friend.
he's so nice. He's so nice. He was so he nice. He's super nice. And also, I just really admire his writing because, you know, we were saying sometimes comedy and horror just don't work together. But both Horror Store and My Best Friend's Exorcism simultaneously scared me and made me laugh. So yes. I think this is like, if anyone does it, he does it really well um and i really enjoyed this book as well um so you guys should definitely check it out as soon as you can um so yeah that's that you guys want to talk about what's on the blog real fast what's on the blog blog? emily is doing not one but two tv show recaps i decided i wasn't doing enough stuff and so (laughs) i i chose to recap so you think you can dance and are you the one i am so pleased because these are two of my favorite things about summer because lord knows i hate the heat that is not my favorite thing about summer um but these shows are great and i'm super excited that they're back speaking of reality tv especially mtv reality shows i also wrote a blog about catfish because max is leaving the show so sad and i just have to speak about it so, Why even watch? I don't know. I don't know what to do. And I actually talked to Ben about maybe guesting on this blog because if you know yeah. Ben, you know he loves Max. He loves Max. He loves that silver fox. So, all right. Mm-hmm. What else is on the blog, guys? Um, I wrote a blog about The Bold Type, which is a show that I like a lot and watched last season and this season. I have lots of fond personal memories of the show, but I tried to reel it in and do a sort of objective post about Jane specifically, one of the main characters, and how she's kind of crappy and holds the show back a little bit. (laughs) But it's just some critiques of a show I really like. Um, Also, on the blog, Gabriella friend of the pod has written a review of the book radium girls by kate moore and talks about how it is very moving and good we love having her on the blog she can come back whenever she wants yeah i she something she does that i really like that i think i struggle with is like weaving in personal experience to a pretty objective review yeah Sometimes it's hard to do that, I think, but she does it really well. And Susan, you have a blog? I do. Uh, I have a blog about um, a fairly new true crime podcast called Wrong Skin. Ooh. It's produced by The Age in Melbourne, Mel- Melbourne, however you say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the same people who did the podcast Phoebe's Ooh. Fall, which is um, a really good just short six-episode true crime podcast that I was actually going to write about that and just ask people why the heck they haven't listened to it. And then when I went to go listen to it again, I saw that they had this new one out. And so you just went further then I listened to that. <laughs> Susan, so I need you to just make me a list of true crime podcasts <laughs> that I need to listen to because like, you know I, all the good ones. And that's why I have to write about them. But yeah. this one's really good. And it's about a murder that happened in the 1990s in the Australian outback. And so like the murder of many um, indigenous peoples, it was kind of just overlooked. And so now 24 years later, um, they're like digging back into this and people are starting to talk. So um, it's a good like cultural overview as well um i feel like i learned a lot in six episodes really short episodes too so easy listen 
That is awesome. Nice. Um, next on the podcast, uh, we will be talking about The Trespasser by Tana French, which is my pick. I am super excited because uh, I've been waiting to read this book for a really long time, and at long last, I'm finally reading it, and... It's a mystery, and it's great. It takes place in Dublin. Um, if you're not reading along with us, you should be. You still have time. You've got two weeks. Get on it. Um, and then after that, we actually are going to talk about shark objects. Like, for real this time. For real this time. <laughs> and we are pumped. We are so excited. Excited. So excited that we announced it early. <laughs> Twice. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, but it's really coming this time, so get ready. <laughs> you have time. This is four weeks from now, so you have plenty of time to watch <laughs> before this. Yeah. So. What are their? S- and you'll be watching along with me because Mary <laughs> is still early. In the- Mary, Kay, are you two? Are you watching Sharp Objects? Mary yes, Kay? but I haven't watched the most recent one. Okay, I me will neither. not spoil I'm it because I watched it last night. Okay, well, I'm. I love. Amy I was going to watch it last so. night, but I had to watch Jennifer's Body. Oh, I'm so. sorry. Yes. <laughs> Instead, I watched that. I, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it was not as good as that episode of Sharp Objects, but sorry. Uh, no, you're right. Nah, it I think it was. Because Adam Brody was in it. So. <laughs> you know what? Spoiler, Adam Brody is in this episode of Sharp Objects. Well, wow. I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> is he wearing eyeliner? Mm, sure. Yeah. I mean, this is make-believe, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> um... Love I don't like this movies. world you're creating. Yeah. Mary Kay. Yes. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Okay. So you can find me. I'm just under my name on all social media. And then we have an Instagram for everything trying to kill you. We have a Facebook group for everything trying to kill you. And we have a Facebook page for everything trying to kill you. And we just started our Twitter. And it's Horror Show Girls, which I think is kind of funny. <gasps> That's what it's called. That's awesome. I think we got blocked because we tried to make it everything trying to kill you on Twitter, and they were like, kill us in this? No way. So we had to revise it a little bit. But that's where you can find us, and we're on iTunes, too, if you want to come listen. Emily's been on three episodes of ours. Well, it's about to be three, right? Two and a half. Yeah. Two and a half, because you did a mini one with me. How could I forget about the mini episode? That's one of my favorites. Like, well, that was so that was fun. So fun. Yeah. We gotta do that again. It's my dream yeah. to one day be on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Thank you guys so much for having me on here. This was super fun. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah. I'm glad we got we, to do this you together. You are welcome anytime. Thanks. Yeah, and Susan is very excited to be podcasting with you for the first mm-hmm. time, I'm sure. Yay, Susan. I only wish Adam Brody was here. <laughs> <laughs> so, normally Kelly does this part. Uh, I'll do it. Okay. No one's going to do it as good as No, of course not. But close. We can try to get close. Okay. So it's social media stuff, right? That's what we're talking about? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. All right. (laughs) You can follow Book Squad Goals on Instagram and Twitter at Book Squad Goals. We have a Facebook page also called Book Squad Goals. Please go like us. Mm -hmm. And of Mm -hmm. course, of course... I will stress this a lot because Kelly would do this. Yes. She would say, please, for the love of all that is holy, rate, review, and subscribe. Yes. Also, if you have any listener feedback about blogs, 
about this other sode, about a full episode, anything. Just about how pretty Mary Kay's hair is. Oh my gosh. Thank you. You can email us at <laughs> the squad at bookswadgoals.com. Maybe you just want to tell us, here's my pet today. Oh, also <laughs> always accepting pet pics just yes. in general. Um, yeah. And I think that's, I think that's all the, the places, right? Mm-hmm. That's it, I think. <laughs> okay. If, if we messed up. Also, if you yeah. want to rep us in a material way, we have t-shirts for sale. Oh, anyway. Right. How did I forget that? In a variety of colors. You got pink ones and gray ones and black ones, and mm-hmm. that's about it. But if you want Two one of those colors, we got you. <laughs> It'll got match you. your guy liner. If you want blue, I don't know what to do for you. That's just not what we got. Yet, but but you never know. Yeah. You never know.